morning, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, and we are coming to the conclusion. Some have referred to it as the addendum, the addition to the parable of the prodigal son, not because they believe it was not a part of this parable, but because it has no parallels within the context of the other parables that are given here. We saw in the first part of the chapter, Jesus gave the parable of the lost sheep and then the parable of the lost coin. And we come then to the parable of the lost son or what we call the prodigal son. But there's no addendum to the first two parables, which some say is really just one parable that has two illustrations. There's no addendum that addresses, for example, the, the 99 sheep once the one is found and, and returned, or the nine coins once the one has been found and, and returned, as there is here in the last portion with the older son, the older brother of this, of this Middle Eastern man that Jesus speaks of. So there's the context here of three related parables, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, but also in the context, remember the, the chapter of what's going on here, we saw in the first part of the chapter that the tax collectors, verse 15, verse 1, that the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus, coming to listen to Him. But there are also those, the Pharisees, the scribes and the lawyers, who began to grumble as they, as they looked and saw the type of the people that not only were gathering around Jesus, that they might expect to some degree, but the fact that Jesus was receiving these people, receiving these sinners, and eating with them. So there were those who came near to listen, as opposed to those who stood aloof from Him to criticize. And Jesus has challenged their view of God Regarding the sinners, again, we considered the parable of the of the lost sheep and the lost coin. But then we looked at the the first son, the younger son, who is the prodigal son, and the picture there that Jesus presents of the the sin, and Jesus accurately portrayed that so that those who were hearing would said, "Yes, this is what these people are like. They are like this younger son." who has insulted his father and he's gone off into the world and he's wasted all that he had that was given to him by his father. They've got, they would say, Jesus, you have illustrated sin very well. And then when repentance is shown where this son returns, they would say, you have shown repentance very well. Where they would have disagreed with Jesus is the response of the Father or that portraying God. That's where they would have said, God cannot be, God is not 
like this. In fact, the idea of God receiving repentant sinners was more of a God who stands there with his arms enclosed, convinced me of the sincerity of your repentance, confess to me all the wrongs that you have done, and I may let you into my kingdom. But that's not the picture that Jesus gives, is it? That when this son returns, and remembering as we just considered their returning in the context of not just of not this mansion up on a hilltop, but returning into a village, returning to a community, and the father looking out and seeing where that village or where that distant road becomes a village street, sees his son coming, and in order to spare his son the humiliation that would have been his by walking up that street alone, he runs and he greets him. And he embraces him and he receives him so that he walks shoulder to shoulder with that son into his home. That's the love that Jesus says. This is the way you should envision your heavenly father. This God who not only sits back and welcomes and receives sinners, but he goes after them. He is a pursuing God. And he, Jesus, even coming into the world, humiliating himself. So that he might receive sinners. And there's the picture of the father. Humiliating himself. Because Middle Eastern men do not run. And they understand, you understand, last week you mentioned, or two weeks ago, just the picture there that some of the, the earlier translations, the Arabic translations, refused to translate, he ran. Because they knew this was a picture of God. And God does not run. But He does. At least for our picture here and for our sake to grasp this. So Jesus, taking upon the form of that suffering servant, runs to receive, to protect His Son. Also, there's a a bit of uniqueness in this parable. From the lost sheep and the, and the coin. One is we see an increased value. You know we've seen the value of, of one sheep. And a herd or a flock I suppose. Of 99. But here we have it given to us in the pictures of a son. We have the picture of a coin. One of ten. But the increased value of a son over a sheep, or a coin. And then again, the unexpected continuation here. Jesus has given these parables. He's given this one about this this lost sheep. And the shepherd, the good shepherd, which you would expect, goes out and he finds that sheep. And he restores it and he rejoices. And this lady, this woman who has lost this coin, and she does all that is necessary. She lights the house. She gets the broom. She sweeps the house trying to find that coin until she does find it. And then she rejoices and has those come to rejoice with her. So the parable that Jesus here gives, the parable of this prodigal son, as this younger son has has wandered out, but has come back and has been welcomed and received the expectation would be, in light of the two parables that have gone before, the expectation would be, that's the end of the story. Right? 
I mean, don't you expect that to some degree? He was lost. He is found. End of the story. Big party going on. But that's not the end of the story. There is this unexpected addendum, continuation here. So what's the purpose of this addition that Jesus places on this parable? And that's what we're going to be considering today. And certainly we can expect that it was a special concern for those who were hearing Jesus. That Jesus wasn't just speaking to be have His voice heard, but He was addressing those at hand, the issue at hand. And so that's how we want to consider this, this last portion of, our, of this parable this morning. And I have entitled my message, For Those Who Need No Repentance. I hope you find that somewhat strikingly odd, because it's intended to be. For those who need no repentance, that there is a message and we're taking that from the, the words of Jesus himself in verse 7. Where he speaks of the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I think for the sake of continuity, we'll read this, this entire parable starting in verse 11. But our focus today will be on verses 25 through 32. And he, Jesus, said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father. And will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring in the fatted calf. Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. And he was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. The likely end of the story. But Jesus continues. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. 
And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat, so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. The police officer pulled over the car that had just run through a stop sign. Do you ever have any chance to do any of that, brother combo? <laughs> and as the police officer came to the to the side of the car, he looked and saw the gentleman and he just, he says, uh, you ran a stop sign. He said, I know. He said, well, why didn't you stop? And his response was simply this. I didn't think that it was meant for me. Anything like that, brother? <laughs> That's not so unusual, is it? Uh, do we not deal with such circumstances within our own homes? As we give instructions for all of our children. <laughs> and why haven't you? Or why did you? And I didn't think it was meant for me. See, to believe that, that the message of repentance is for someone else. It was easy for the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day to understand that Jesus would tell the story of repentance because they knew that there were people there for which that message, that story was very applicable. Plenty of people that they knew of. And in fact, those within the company of Jesus, those are those that need to hear this message of Repentance, because, I mean, isn't it not true of, of our own hearts that we can look at other people's sin and we can see how much worse it is than ours? Comparatively speaking, my sin is not all that bad. But it becomes clear from this text, especially in light of the, the addition that Jesus makes to this parable, that the message of repentance is, in fact, for everyone. And so we're going to look at this in light of the reality that all are called to repentance, and that because all are, call, all are called, all must consider their need of it. And so the title of the message for those who need no repentance is tongue-in-cheek. Because we realize that, in fact, there is none such as this. But we also, as I explained a couple of Sundays ago as we addressed this, that when Jesus uses the terminology of those who need no repentance, that he's not speaking of that there are people, in fact, who do not need to repent, but there are people who view themselves as not needing repentance. 
not needing to do something that drastic. I mean, repentance, that's, that's a complete turnaround of life. That's saying that everything that I do, everything that I've done, and in fact, everything about me is wrong and is un- displeasing to God. I don't need anything that drastic, do I? Maybe a few areas I need to work on, a few blind spots, a few little quirks here and there. But to be so drastic as to say that God is offended by everything I do and everything about me. Surely that is not for me. That's for the people who are involved in genocides. That's for the people who are involved in the the horrendous and the wicked sins that we see becoming more and more prevalent in our society. That's who that message is for. But I think as we consider our text here today, we'll find that that's not all that that message of repentance is for. And I want to think of this in terms this morning of, of three questions. Three questions for those who need no repentance. The first question is this. Have you reverence for God? Have you reverence for God? The story thus far that Jesus has shared here has been this. It's a story of the sin and of the shamefulness of this younger brother. He has as good as wished his father dead, has shamed him by asking for his inheritance, which his father had absolutely no obligation to give to him. But his father honors his request, divides his inheritance between these two brothers. Something of an inference here in the story so far, in the first part of the story, would be you have this younger brother who has brought shame and embarrassment to himself, to his family, to his father, to his, comu- to his community. Aren't you glad that there is another son, an older son, a model, ideal son, who has been no problem? Until now. No problem with this son. Until. Younger brother. Returns. This younger brother who has brought all this shame. Comes back home. And the older brother's problem here is. Not so much with his brother's return. He likely expected that. There'll there'll be a day when young brother will come back on his hands and his knees and hope he gets what he deserves. In fact, what we find here, the problem is not so much with his brother's return. Rather, this older brother takes issue and offense with the grand treatment his brother receives at the hands of his father. There's the issue. For this older brother. And so this older brother. He begins to display an irreverence. And a disrespect. 
for his father in his response to the events that have taken place here. It says here in verse verse 28, Jesus says that he became angry. He's he's found out what's going on. He's gotten word from this servant, probably a young boy. He's and he's his this servant is told in verse 27, your brothers come, your fathers killed the fatted calf because he received him safe and sound. Verse 28, he became angry. He became angry and was not willing to go in. I made reference a couple of weeks ago also to a book by uh, Kenneth Bailey. I've put it down at the foot of your of your notes if you keep if you're using the sermon notes. Uh, Finding the Lost Cultural Keys to Luke 15 by Kenneth Bailey, an excellent work on Luke chapter 15. And I want to refer to his comments here on this response. By this older brother. The text bluntly affirms he became angry and refused to go in. The shock of this public action is beyond description. The equivalent in Western society might be some case of a, might be some case of a wealthy leading figure in a Western community who has a candlelight formal banquet for his most important friends and associates. In the middle of the banquet, his unshaven son appears without a shirt or shoes and verbally attacks his father in the presence of the seated guest. Such a scene would be excruciatingly painful for the father. It would show utter disregard for the feelings and the personal, personal dignity of that father on the part of his son. Such a scene can hardly be imagined in the modern West, where family relationships are less formal than in the past. How much worse than it is in the East, where the public respect of the father is virtually never withheld. He makes reference to one of the rabbi's admonitions that stated, It is better for a man that he should cast himself into a fiery furnace, rather than that he should put his fellow to shame in public. And Bailey comments on that. The older son has not shamed his fellow, but his father. It is not merely in public, but at a formal banquet hosted by that father. So what is the meaning of this refusal in the East when an older son deliberately insults his father in public at a banquet? And one rabbi says this, about his refusal to enter. The older son demonstrated maliciousness of character and meanness. He has no love for his brother, no appropriate respect for his father. His position in this regard is equivalent to the grumbling of the scribes and the Pharisees against the Christ for his acceptance of sinners. And he says, a number of clear implications can be discerned from the older son's action. I'm just going to read three of these. It says, this insult cuts more deeply. Listen to this. This insult cuts more deeply than that of the prodigal at the beginning of the story. Because it is delivered at a public occasion hosted by the father. The two brothers in different ways each put the father through the what he quotation marks, the torture of the damned. Yet here the father suffers more than he did at the beginning of the story. 
The prodigal insulted his father in private. The older son did it in public. A traditional Middle Eastern father in the past would immediately order the slaves to overpower the disobedient son in the courtyard and drag him by force into a side room and lock him up. A grim-faced father would then proceed with the banquet after the guests have left, and the older son would be brought out, held down by the slaves, and beaten. Then now, for the third time in the parable, the person of the father is not shaped by the traditional image of the Middle Eastern patriarch. So it gives us a picture of this son's response. He says that he became angry and not willing to do that, and how that would have been understood in that day. It's expected that when your father is hosting these guests and he has this party that you hear it, you would you would come in as a polite and respecting son. And in fact, this is of greater harm and of hurt than the first son. Note also verse 29. When his father comes out, he answered and he said to his father, look. Many times in our home, we have to address not so much what is said, but how it is said. And I don't know of any way to begin speaking to someone and showing any respect. And the first word out of your mouth is, look. That's clear in any language, isn't it? The first word out of your mouth is, look here. Listen to me. You don't see. You know, typically there would be the addressing my father. Would you please hear my case? But not the case at all with this one. He begins with the words, look, and that is disrespectful in any language. Then the charge he makes in verse 29, this charge of having been wrong. Look what he says. He answered and said to his father, for many years I've been serving, and the word here is I have been slaving for you. I have been slaving for you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet, you, you hear what he's saying here? I've done everything right, I've done nothing wrong, and now look what you have done. How wrong you are here. You have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. So... He faults his father's reactions toward his brother. There's 30. When this son of yours, (laughs) it's not my brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth, that's clear, with prostitutes, that's not clear. He killed the fattened calf for him. So, faulting the father for his response. Your response 
your treatment of me and your response toward my brother is completely wrong. Bailey again comments, if I might read. Here the father has just offered the most more costly love to the older son. And sadly, the response to that love is a barrage. Remember, a barrage of public criticism. If you have in your mind, they're out in the, quiet, in the garden quietly talking, just two of them. That's not the picture here. This is done in public. Breathlessly, all await the father's next response. If the father was not initially outraged by the older son's refusal to enter the banquet hall, he will now certainly order a thrashing for the son. His public honor is at stake. The listening guest, family, musicians, slaves, young boys will cheer him on if he raises his walking stick and brings it down with a resounding crack over his son's back after this second public outrage. And then, of course, the response that he gives there. What's this a picture of? How are, when Jesus is telling this, how was this supposed to be received by those who are hearing? And again, I'll just read a few sentences here by Bailey. And he says, Jesus is addressing the human predicament. Every religious community has its insiders and outsiders. The first, at least, appear to keep the accepted patterns of faith and life. The second, break them. For the insiders, the very keeping of the rules can create an ultra-Orthodox mentality that fosters a sense of superiority and a judgmental attitude toward all others. For Jesus, the Pharisaic audience before him fits this classical pattern, which he strikingly portrays in the speech and actions of the older son. The insiders and the outsiders. Pharisees, lawyers, deemed themselves, they were the insiders. Sinners, the publicans, they're the outsiders. And you see the, the arrogance, which is to be pictured in the arrogance that is displayed toward God Himself. That's His intent here. It's portraying utter disrespect and an irreverence that is paralleled by that of the Pharisees and the scribes back in, in verse 2. They're claimed to be the people of God. They're claimed to speak for God. And here they are attacking, being critical of God Himself as Christ receives sinners. So very simply in their mind, God would not be in the company of such people. God is not like this. And such is the danger of religious practitioners who have no relation with God. They do not know God. They think God is not like this because they don't know Him. And though they have, so they have created a God after their own imaginations. It is their God. And we find here that 
and the scribes and the Pharisees that their practices and their forms have become theirs to defend. We do this and we don't do this and we will defend it into the end, even if it meant going up against God himself, which it did. And their pretended reverence for God is exposed by their reactions to Jesus, their treatment of Jesus. They had no true reverence for God. If there had been reverence for God, there would have been reverence for Christ. He is God. No humility. No admission of their own guilt. Just criticism and grumbling against Christ who is God Himself. And certainly we must guard against a supposed gospel message that fails to show men their irreverence and their opposition to God. You see, there is much that is being advanced today in the, in the Western world in particular that goes to great, ex, great extremes not to be offensive to people, not to point out that they are, they are estranged from God, not to point out that they stand in opposition to God, not to point out that they are, by their very lives, irreverent toward God. And so the offense of the gospel is removed. And people come by the droves without repentance and without Christ. So let me ask, does your religious practice stir genuine reverence for God within you? Do you have reverence for God? Or if God acts contrary to what you think he ought to do, you criticize. As this older son did. Second. Second question. For those who believe that they need no repentance. Do you rejoice in grace? Do you rejoice in grace? See, another hard issue that is, becomes exposed here is this anger and this fault-finding directed toward his brother, toward his father. His brother is portrayed in the worst light, isn't he? In verse 30 there, he came to his devoured your wealth, yet we know that's gone. With prostitutes, we don't know how it happened. There's no indication from what Jesus said. But evidently, the brother is, is reading the worst into his brother's experience Portray him, painting him, and remember in a public in a public setting, trying to make this wayward brother who has returned look as bad as he possibly can in light of all who are gathered there. So picture him in the worst light. And then his father, who has killed the fatted calf, that which was to be used for the most special of occasions, and rather than rejoicing, he finds fault. He criticizes his father. And he says there, you have killed the, the fatted calf for him. This goes on to say, uh, Bailey says here about the older son's comment that he has killed the prodigal, has killed the fatted calf for the prodigal. It says the older son erroneously concluded that the banquet was for the prodigal and that the fatted calf was killed for him. 
And too many commentators to note have unfortunately agreed. Such is not the case. This banquet is the third in the series. The lost sheep was certainly not the honored guest at the simple party the shepherd hosted for his friends when he returned to the village carrying the same lost sheep. Nor did the guests at that celebration make a fuss over the lost sheep. The guests may ask, where is that rascal who caused you all this trouble? The shepherd may then point out the lost sheep, perhaps tied in the courtyard. Rather, the shepherd and his friends celebrate the success of the shepherd's costly efforts. Joy at success seats company. The shepherd wants to celebrate his success at finding his sheep and so calls in his friends. The woman's lost coin is not the center of attention at the woman's party. It may be on display, but her women friends have entered her house for the express purpose of congratulating her on the success of her costly efforts. The celebration is not in honor of the coin but rather in celebration of the woman who searched the house until she found her coin. In like manner, the party is not in honor of the prodigal. The party is taking place because the father recovered his son with shalom, with peace, with well-being. The father is the center of attention at the banquet, not the prodigal. As indicated, the community will somewhat reluctantly accept the prodigal because of what his father has done for him and because of the robe he is wearing. Otherwise, he'd be ostracized. But by no stretch of the imagination is he the honored guest. No congratulation will be offered to him. God will be praised that he is back. No more will be said to him. They will not embarrass him with questions about his absence. By contrast, many words of his of congratulations will be extended to the Father. The banquet is in His honor. So the older son is completely misunderstood the purpose of the banquet. And it certainly reveals the heart of the self-righteous, doesn't it? And you know what we find here. And it's the reason I read that, that parable there from, from Matthew earlier. We find that the heart of man at its core is that we are haters of grace. Aren't we? Man hates grace. Because grace can take anyone. Grace can take someone no matter how far down they have fallen. No matter how wicked their sin. Grace can take that one and elevate them all the way to the place of the sonship of God. And the complaint that the those who labored in the vineyard had was that the, the, the owner of this vineyard had made those who came in at the last hour, equal with them. And that's what grace does, doesn't it? And we don't like that. We don't like the idea that someone who can commit some of the heinous sins that we see in the world in which we live, that there's the possibility... There's the possibility because of grace... That those people could be in heaven. 
How many of you relish the idea? You relish the idea because you love grace so much that there's the possibility had a man named Adolf Hitler ever repented, he could have gone to heaven. You relish that idea? How many of you relish the idea that someone can come into our society and commit hideous crimes against children? And if they repent, they can go to heaven. I just read something this week. We came through one of our emails and just some of the events going on. Some of you perhaps read it. I'm not going to get into the details of it. Transpired at a park down in Johnson City. My response verbally to my wife was wicked. And I realized again how much in and of myself I don't love grace as I ought. Because grace can take someone who I deem to be the worst, to be the dregs of society, and can raise them up to the same standing and relationship with God that I have. And I struggle with that sometimes. And so the question I ask is do you rejoice in grace? Or do you believe that there's some people who will never deserve the favor and the standing with God that you have because you've not done anything like they've done? See, the older son's failure... was to see the same grace demonstrated toward him. When he has publicly humiliated his father by his refusal to go in, and his father comes out and begins pleading with him. Here's the picture. He's not a father coming out ranting and raving, Demanding respect. Get your tail in there. But he comes in. Comes to him. And he pleads with him. And he says to him after this son has just ranted and raved about all that's so wrong here and what's going on. And this is what he says and it gets down in verse... 31, he said to him, Son, now the word that's used here, common word in the scripture for son is huios, Greek word huios, which means son. The word that is used here, the only time in this parable when it speaks of a son, but just remember, this is the, the words of the Father 
The word here is technon. And the idea behind the word technon here, instead of just the general terminology, huios, it is this. It's the tender expression that means something like this. My beloved boy. After this son has humiliated, he has ranted and he has raved. And here is the words of this father. Picturing, picturing God. Picturing God. My beloved boy. See, this older son, he just didn't get the... uh, He didn't understand how much grace was being poured out toward him right then at that moment. And if you understand the measure of grace that has been poured out and is being poured out toward you, whoever you are, that you can look at and you can say, hey, let them come in. I've received of grace. That's my ticket in. It's the grace of God. Let God bring in whomever He will. And I'm going to rejoice in grace because that's my only way in. It's the grace of God. And if there are some of these people that I look at And I would deem them unfit for heaven. It's just an opportunity to rejoice in the greatness and the depths of God's grace. It's greater than I had imagined. And this son misses that. See, there's reasons that all men, all people, should rejoice in grace. First of all, simply put, we all need it. We can rejoice in grace being demonstrated toward others because it's something we've all got to have. And all who are loved and received by God are indebted to His grace. All of grace. Do you really believe that, dear Calvinist? That you're totally depraved? Another reason all men should rejoice in grace is that God rejoices. God rejoices in the fruit of such grace. He rejoices when there is repentance. We saw all the way back in verse 7. I tell you the same way. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In verse 10, the same way I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We can rejoice that we ought to rejoice because God joys in it. God rejoices in the fruit of grace. And that bring that is the bringing about of repentance. Now, I like the wording here in verse 32, the very last verse of the chapter there. This is the words of the father to his son. He said, he said, we had to celebrate now, there's a picture for heaven. I'm, I'm not, I'm, maybe we're just, maybe we're just all these kind of people, you know, I'm just so excited. Can you see the excitement in my face and my demeanor? <laughs> Here's the father. He knows what he is. He says, listen, we had to celebrate and rejoice. We couldn't keep this in. We couldn't just ignore this, this great experience. For this brother of yours was dead 
And he's now begun to live. He was lost and he's been found. That warrants, that warrants such a celebration, such an expression of joy. We had to do it. Couldn't hold it back. What a picture. What a picture of the joy of heaven when a sinner repents. Just has to happen. Can't be held back. To rejoice in God's grace to sinners, whether they be murderers, whether they be committers of crimes that I can't even mention in the pulpit, whether they be persecutors of the believers. You know, sometimes I get in my flesh. I, I told, I mentioned, I maybe I don't remember where it was. I just mentioned recently that I, I think Wednesday night about reading through the Voice of the Martyrs magazine and some of the things that transpire in these other countries, the persecuted church. And, you know, I just, sometimes I just get in the flesh. I just want somebody to just come over and just teach these guys a lesson. Interesting, we see, turn with me just very briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You want to know, just incidentally, who's going to be in heaven. He starts out in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So here's the folks that aren't going to be there. And we read this list. Yeah, buddy, don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of these people want to inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't that our yes list? Yes, yes, yes. And then Paul just keeps going. Verse 11. Such were some of you. I would like to pick out from that list who I think they are, but he just says, you, dear saints at Corinth, this is a list of where you were before grace, without grace. There's no grace for sinners. There's no grace for you. No hope at all. Do you rejoice in grace? And finally, For those who think they need no repentance, will you reconsider your guilt? See, Jesus' purpose for this addendum, this addition to this parable that's not found in the previous two parables, was to expose the the self-righteous regarding themselves as needing no repentance. Exposing them to themselves. Now, they might not see themselves in the prodigal younger son. We're not like that. We haven't done those type of things. We've not been involved in that type of life. But they couldn't miss the point of seeing themselves in the older son. This model son. Whose offenses were in many respects worse than the prodigal. So here Jesus ends in verse 32. And the question that begs to be asked here is, 
What happened? Jesus, we thought you were going to quit on verse, I'll break down, verse 24. You know, the sun's back, froggles are back, party. All right, you've kept going. Please don't tell me you're going to stop in verse 32. What happened? parable abruptly ends without an older son's recorded response. And the point, I think, in such an ending is this. As Jesus would address this parable to those who are hearing, the essence of it, in which you cannot help to even do is to some degree as you listen to this parable, is you kind of, as you're listening, you're hearing, you're thinking, let's put myself into this story. You know, they had put the sinners in the story. And they had put God into the story. But put yourself in this story. And those who were hearing Jesus, those who deemed that they had no need for repentance had but one option if they were going to put them place themselves in the story. And that was to place themselves right here. This older son is me. It's us. So then the question becomes not what happened. The question becomes, once you place yourself in this story, the question becomes... What will you do? How will your story end? Will you remain outside, insisting upon you being right and all else being wrong? Or are you willing to reconsider your guilt and to recognize how foolish and how blind I have been. And that's what you, you hope for. You hope that this son, if somewhere along the line, that the scales just fall off. Say, what an utter fool I've been here. So are you here today who need to reconsider your own guilt? How did you come into the kingdom of God? If you did not repent, if you have not repented, you have not entered. You may have the appearance of godliness. You may have a tenacious clinging to morality. and You like the, the moral nature of the church. You like decency and you just kind of like the people of the church. It's kind of nice. You go to church. You read the Bible. You think the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers didn't read the Bible? That was their job. Pray. Jesus tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees prayed. His warning is don't pray like they do, but they prayed. So what's your hope? 
Thank God's going to let you into heaven because you pray, because you read your Bible, because you hold it this because you do whatever your list includes. You think that's going to get you into heaven? You repent or you perish. And so the word today to those who have any sense that they do not need repentance because, hey, I've made a pretty decent representation of my life having never repented. It's nothing more than your own self-made religion and it will be woefully lacking when you stand before God. Will you reconsider just the vileness, just the sinfulness of your sin? Any here who need no repentance? Would Jesus offer simply one word of counsel to you? Repent. You think you don't need repentance? That's his instruction to you. Repent. Place yourself in the story. You can be the outsider. You can be in a life that is vile and wicked and evil, marked by sin, clear in the eyes of all who behold a life of sin. Or you can be the older son who has no reverence for God, no reverence for his father, who cannot rejoice in grace because he is dependent upon his standing, based upon his performance, his deeds. And hence will not reconsider his guilt. Where are you? Let's pray. Father, we we confess that we don't begin to touch the depths of what you've given to us in this story. And I certainly would not claim to have touched all that could be or even ought to be touched. So I ask, O oh God, to take these truths and, and plant them deeply to our hearts. And for those who have truly repented, that we can rejoice in these things. That we can confess there is, by the grace of God, a reverence in my heart toward God. And there is... By the, by the grace of God, a desire to please Him and to live for Him. A rejoicing in grace because I understand that's my only hope. So apply these truths, Lord, as you would be pleased, as is needed here today. But whatever may be of of my own ideas or thoughts, remove it from our thoughts. Oh God, your truth, your truth to prevail. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.